I wanna be a billionaire so freaking bad. Buy all of the things I never had. Welcome to the Celebrity Net Worth Podcast. Today we are going to exclusively devote the entire episode to the Ferrari 250 GTO. Now, this is not completely out of the blue. Earlier this week, I posted an article where I wrote the backstory of everyone who currently owns a 250 GTO. And it's pretty crazy because it's the 250 GTO, for those who don't know, is probably the most valuable car in the entire car collecting world. It's definitely the most expensive car that's ever sold at auction. Um, one sold for $38 million a couple years ago. At some point recently, one allegedly sold for $52 million, but it was unconfirmed. So to discuss the article and some of the issues that came out of the article after I posted it, I've invited Morgan Carter back onto the podcast. Morgan is a good friend of mine from LA who is a vice president at Gooding & Company, which is one of the world's largest classic car auction companies. Morgan, are you there? Yeah, I'm here, Brian. How are you? I'm, I'm doing pretty good. Thanks for joining us tonight. Yeah, my pleasure. So let me give a little bit more background on the 250 GTO, um, and feel free to chime in if, if I'm missing anything or if I'm saying anything incorrect. But basically, the, the article that I wrote originally was that there are, the title of the article was literally, there are 33... 250 GTOs left in the world. And then I wrote out descriptions for everyone who, like the history of how everybody got one and this whole thing. Um, but even going back before that, um, 250 GTO was produced from 1962 to 1964. They originally cost $18,000, which is the equivalent of about $145,000 today. Notable current owners include Pink Floyd's Nick Mason, Walmart Air, Rob Walton, Cellular Telephone Tycoon Craig McCaw, and Ralph Lauren. Um, Morgan, I mean, you've, you know all about the 250 GTO. Because this is, this is uh, the most coveted car in the world, am I right? Yeah, I think it is. I think there's a lot of cars in this category, but amongst Ferrari gearheads, I think the 250 GTO is sort of the pinnacle and the peak of uh, a sort of collection you can do within that mark, that's for sure. Do you have any idea why? Well, I think the 250 GTO uh, it came about during a time when Ferrari was sort of at the head of their um, extreme, you know, sort of Formula One success. They had, uh, I guess, I'd say a long string of success through the late 50s and early 60s uh, through Formula One, racing at Le Mans. Their cars were always, um, it's funny you think about Italian cars today, you wouldn't think um, that they would have this reputation, but when Enzo Ferrari put a lot of these cars together to go racing, his cars were not only the best looking, but his cars were also the fastest, and his cars also had uh, the temperament to withstand a, an endurance race. A lot of these races back then were 12 hours or 24 hours, and yeah. you got a lot of these American cars who were trying to compete or maybe other European cars who were trying to compete, and not a lot of them would be able to withstand 24 hours pounding on the transmission. So they did everything right, Ferrari did. Um, so they really, you know, the guys immediately started collecting them back in the day. I mean, they were, even in the late 60s, it was um, a piece of ownership, uh, a piece of pride, rather, to have one of these cars. And that's just continued to this day. A lot of other cars, it's taken a while for them to sort of establish that cachet, but it's always had that with Ferraris, actually. And I think definitely part of it is also the fact that so few were made. 
Absolutely. You know, one of the funny things about um, racing cars um, during back in the day, the FIA, the, I forget the acro- what the acronym stands for, but it's basically the governing body for all the racing. Um, essentially what they did is they required for all these manufacturers who were putting together these engines, they had to what's called homologate their race cars, which means you had to be able to purchase one of these cars off the line, uh, right off right off their factory shelves. Mm-hmm. So basically, you know, you have the Pontiac GTOs, the Mustangs. The only reason those are allowed to race in NASCAR is because, you know, Ford and Chevy and, uh, and Dodge, they were all creating those cars by the thousands. But back in the day, Ferrari would be making cars by the handful. They make it five or ten cars. So the homologation standards required them to produce actually 100 versions of a car for it to actually come under the, uh, uh, the homologation standards. And actually, well, what's funny about the 250 GTO, that's what it stands for, Gran Turismo Homologato. It means uh, essentially that the car was set up for racing within the GT segment, but it was homologated, had 100 different cars that sold. Funny thing was, Ferrari never sold 100 of these cars. In fact, they only made We'll talk about it. Thirty-eight or right. thirty-nine cars, and in the end, in the end, they actually got in trouble for it. A couple of years later, um, FIA came down on them, but uh, that's one of the reasons why actually Ferrari made these road-going cars. Is they were they're really a race race car company that had to make road-going cars just so they could continue racing. That's interesting. That's really cool. I didn't know that. Did you? So, were the was it such that the road car and the race car had to be not only design identical, but also like interior mechanically identical? Well, I think you'd find the race car is going to be different in a lot of ways than the road car. I mean, essentially they're going to be the same. Maybe call it 95% the same, but the interior of a race car, of course, is going to be stripped down. You're going to see a lot of bare metal. You're not going to see the nice leather wrapped steering wheel or wooden steering Mm -hmm. wheels that you'd see on a road car. Um, They might have, you know, different radiators that were set up for, um, uh, you know, sort of different demands of an engine. Certainly if you're driving in a car straight at 180 miles an hour for 24 hours, uh, the engine and the radiator and the transmission and all those different things have to be tuned in a different way than it is for the road car. That being said, I mean, I've, they're probably very, very similar in terms of all the pieces that go together on the cars. I mean, they're all made in the same factors. The same guys wrenching on race cars that wrenched on the road cars. So essentially they are all the same. Yeah, it makes sense. Okay, so now let's get into sort of the controversy that I accidentally erupted earlier this week when I published the article titled, There Are 33 Ferrari 250 GTOs Left in the World. As soon as I published that, I mean, I was, I was, I was trying to be proactive, and I was pub- putting the, the link onto a couple of Ferrari fan forums and chat rooms and different places, and like right off the bat, people were like, you're wrong. There were not 33. There were 36 Nope, there were 39. Actually, in my original article, I said there were 33 250 GTOs left out of the original 39 that were made, and I said that there were 39. I thought that because from some of the articles that I had read, there were 39 model like chassis numbers listed, and there were only 33 on the 250 GTO page as being like current owners. And this other article I found that had a little bit of information about the current owner. So I just assumed, oh, they must have made 39. And as happens with many cars, they crash and get stolen or get blown up. I don't know. And so there must only be 33 left. But it turns out I was wrong. But there's, there's some reason for the confusion. There's a couple different reasons for the confusion, right? 
Yeah, absolutely. I think, uh, and I'll start off by saying I in no way am a Ferrari expert. There are guys out there who have spent hours and hours and weeks and months and years in the Ferrari archives finding out all this information because when a car was produced back in the day, some records were kept. You know, they might have said, all right, we put engine number this in there. We put uh, transmission number this in this car and frame number was stamped as this. And I went out the door. But sometimes those factory records weren't kept that straight. So, you know, there is a lot of murkiness sometimes to it. That being said, the 250 GTO is one of the most researched models there ever has been. So I think it is pretty clear um, how many cars were created. Uh, and I think it, you know, your, your article obviously started in the right vein uh, and you instantly got trolled, which I knew was going to happen. <laughs> but um, so basically what happened was from 62 to 64, Ferrari produced what we'll call, let's just, let's just call it the 39 cars that Wikipedia says they produce, and we'll go through it. Yep. So they first produced Series 1 cars. Series 1 cars had particular body types that had a particular shape to it. That being said, if you're a Series 1 car, it doesn't mean that they all have the same exact body shape. Every single car was hand-formed. All the different pontoon fenders were hand-formed. So every car is a little bit different based on whatever racing team was going to um, race the car first and foremost. So um, even though they're Series 1 and technically they're all the same, they do look different. You know, obviously there's a wide variety of uh, livery schemes and painting uh, painting schemes that they can come in, uh, but you're going to see slight differences in the body. But for the most part, those first 33 cars, which you referred to in your article as, as the 33 250 GTOs, that's correct. Then Ferrari went and made what they called the Series 2 cars. Series 2 cars had a slightly wider uh, rear axle. Basically, the, the rear wheels were set a little bit farther apart. Uh, maybe I think the rear wheels, actually, the tires themselves were a little bit wider. But for the most part, the Series 2 cars were also identical um, to the 250 GTO in general. They had a very, I'd say, a vastly different body shape. If you're looking at uh, 250 GTO Series 1, and a 250 GTO Series 2, uh, you'd be able to, any layman would be able to tell the difference yeah. right off the bat. I, I noticed so, that as I was writing the article, I was like, wait a minute, this am I getting the right photo here? But this is clearly being, like some site that I was looking at, I was clearly labeling it as a 250 GTO, but I was like, that one looks very different from that one, but I just sort of went with it. Yeah, so the, the funny thing is, and just this is just the way, uh, you know, racing worked and the Italians worked, three of the first Series cars, those Series 1 cars actually went back to the factory to be refitted as Series 2 body cars. So technically, uh, and all those cars still exist, uh, technically there are 30 Series 1 cars, there are three Series 1 cars rebodied as Series 2 cars, and there are three Series 2 cars. It's complicated, but they all match the definition of a 250 GTO because they all have the same chassis and sort of frame spec, but most importantly, they all share the same engine. The 250 uh, and 250 GTO refers to the uh, cubic centimeter displacement of each cylinder. And as everyone, well, most Ferrari gearheads know, Ferrari's engines back in the day were V12. So if you take the 250 of a V12, that makes it a three-liter V12 engine. Okay. So all those cars had the same engine, and they would all be 250 GTO. Mm-hmm. That said, they decided, uh, Enzo Ferrari decided they wanted to make an extra special car. So they took an engine that they had been making for... Uh, what they called the Ferrari Super America, uh, which is a car specially imported in, in the U.S. They took that engine, which was a four-liter V12, 
pretty much 33% bigger than the other engine in terms of displacement, uh, and put that in a 250 GTO. And I think it's actually, they put it in a series one body car. So mm-hmm. there were three 330 GTOs. No, made. they're called 330 GTOs. That's correct. And they look, I mean, if you put them next to each other, it'd be very difficult for anyone to tell without opening the hood uh, to know that a 330 GTO is different than a 250 GTO. But by its very definition, it has a different engine, and therefore I think it's, it would generally be considered a different car. But I think a lot of people just sort of throw it in with the mix just because it has the same body style as the other ones. Well, so, if, so there are those three 330 GTOs out in the world. And I couldn't find too much information about them, but I, know, I also didn't have a lot of time to do as much research as I had done on the other cars. If somebody out there owns that car and you, you see it on the street and you ask him what, it, what he has, what, what does he say, he or she? Well, he says he or she says they have a $50 million plus Ferrari, that's yeah. for sure. <laughs> um, they would tell you they've got a 330 GTO. Now, in, within Ferrari circles, you can find out who owns those cars. They might even, you might even be able to find it online, but the owners of those cars uh, are going to be fairly, I mean, they're going to be reclusive anyway if you're a 250 GTO owner, but a 330 owner has an even more special Ferrari, which I think um, would even be, it said, what I would say agree, and I would agree that those cars are more valuable than a 250 GTO. So, you know, wh- where you put that number at, I don't know. 50, 60 million, I, I, you really don't know because one hasn't been sold publicly for years. And when it comes down to the three cars, and technically, there's actually only two cars. Um, I don't know I mean, if you there's only two, technically. They, oh, yeah, so what's the deal with that? So they took... So Ferrari uh, had made... They made them sort of in, in sequential pairs. So they don't make them and all of a sudden, all right, throw three on the street. They made one 330 GTO, and I think it had some sort of issue. It crashed at a racetrack. So they took all the pieces of the car. They disassembled it. And they reassembled the pieces um, into a different car, uh, which happened a lot. You know, Alfa Romeo in the 30s, uh, Maserati in the 30s, and, and all these different racing companies, they would just do that. They would race a car. Okay, the engine sucks. Boom, we'll get the engine out of there. We'll put a new engine in. So all of a sudden, you have a different engine that, than it was originally fitted with the car. So it happened all the time. But that being said, the first 330 GTO was sort of um, crumpled up, thrown away, and just they used a lot of the pieces to build number two. So number two mm-hmm. and number three, as far as I understand, and I, and I hope someone out there may, may correct us, but number two and number three are the only ones that exist that are 330 GTOs. Got it. And those must be – so there's literally two left in the world, and if you have one, you have $50 million or more dollars sitting in your garage. Yes, absolutely. I, I would agree with that. Wow. Okay, that's incredible. Okay, so another thing I want to get back to before I forget, I want to talk about, you emailed me earlier today a photo of um, the car chassis number, Ferrari 250, 250 GTO, chassis number 3445 GT, which is owned by a guy named Chris Cox, a private investor and philanthropist from Chapel Hill, North Carolina. He got his 250 GTO in 2005 for an undisclosed price. The car was originally red, but was repainted blue and yellow as an homage to to a Swedish driver who had raced the car in the 70s. On July 6, 2012, Christopher was driving the car as part of a convoy of 250 GTOs in France on the way to Le Mans to celebrate the 50th anniversary of the 250 GTO. 
Other members of the Ferrari convoy included Pink Floyd drummer Nick Mason and Sir Anthony Bamford. At some point along the way, one of GTO drivers rear-ended Chris, Croc- Chris Cox, which pushed him into an oncoming Hyundai minivan and totaled the car. I mean, everybody said at the time the car was totaled. That was like a great headline, most expensive car crash of all time, because theoretically that Hyundai minivan, hopefully he had insurance, and if he did, his insurance company was potentially on the hook for 30 or $40 million, if, that's, if that was the case, if it was totally totaled. But you sent me a link today that showed that the car had been restored. Is that right? Yeah, absolutely. So the funny thing is, when you get a car like this, you know, say, for example, you've got a $10 million car. So much of the value is in the history of the, the pieces. And you could essentially build a car, and it wouldn't be as original, but you could build a, a car around a lot of these pieces. And you could build a new body that, uh, you know, you can look at pictures and you could take the measurements that they had from the factory records and you could build a new car for you know, a, an amount less than $10 million. So when people say, oh, a $10 million car was totaled, there's no insurance company that's going to write that off. They're going to look at it and say, okay, he's got a crumpled up heap, yeah. but the engine, the engine is still intact. You've got four wheels. You know, like you've got a lot of the pieces that would still work. So you can either salvage the pieces and sell them to another GTO owner, or you could uh, rebuild the car yourself. And a lot of these restorations, you know, the guys who are working in their garages to rebuild, uh, you know, a, a Mustang that they're, they and their dad had found in an abandoned junkyard somewhere, it's essentially the same process, just with much more skilled workers. So you spend a little bit more money than you would restoring that, um, uh, you know, that, that Mustang, and you can get your, your GTO back. I would not know what was spent. I didn't see the, uh, the damage on this car originally. But looking at the pictures of the car and how it looks now, you know, my, my guess is you could probably spend anywhere from 500000 to a million to $2 million dollars to take your $30 million Ferrari and back to making it worth a $50 million. Would you do it? Yeah, because that makes more sense money-wise. So um, it's very rare for a car of, uh, of these caliber to really be totaled. For it to be totaled, it would have to be crashed at 100 miles an hour. They would have to put it in a compactor, and they'd have to burn it for it to be have completely lost value because at some point somebody will – take a piece of the car and rebuild something around it. Now, I don't know how, how poorly damaged this car was that uh, Mr. Cox had owned, but seeing the pictures of it that I'm seeing online today, there's actually video of it driving around the test track at Ferrari. And what's funny enough is there's a lot of people who will restore cars like this, a lot of people who have the expertise to do a car like this, but you don't send a 250 GTO just to any guy down the street. He, uh, Mr. Cox, sent it to Ferrari Classic A. And Ferrari... A couple of years ago, I want—I don't know when they started the Classic A department, maybe 20 years ago, um, has their own restoration department where they will do, using their own records, they will restore cars to exacting standards that the car was built to back in the mid-60s. So um, I don't know how much money was spent, but certainly the guys at Ferrari Classic A are the best in the business at doing at restoring Ferraris, and they're going to do it. Uh, using as many authentic pieces as they can. I mean, you got to imagine who has the most spare parts for a 250 yeah. GTO in the world. Uh, probably the Ferrari factory. And it's probably still sitting in a pile in the back of the warehouse for 50 years. And now they right. finally have a use for that camshaft. You know, they could finally use it. So it's the absolute right people to do that restoration on that car. And it looks fantastic. I mean, people can, 
it's the first thing you hit when you search 250 GTO today. It's a news article and showing this car ripping around. Yeah, I think it just happened, right? Like, did this just come out a couple days ago, right? Yeah, yeah, it came out a couple days ago. So, car looks fantastic. Uh, owner's got to be absolutely ecstatic to have his car back. And, you know, this certainly isn't a, a service offered only by Ferrari. I think, you know, looking back on it, BMW, Porsche, Mercedes, all those companies have fantastic um, group archives about the company, about their history. So you can sort of, you know, if you want a Porsche, you can go back and order a certificate of authenticity from the Ferrari, uh, from the Porsche factory, rather, uh, no matter how old your, your Porsche is. And they can go back and look at their records to see um, more information about your car than you might have. And so these uh, modern car manufacturers still have a use for a lot of their records and a lot of these parts. And so they, they put it to use and Ferrari Classic K not only will do restorations and in addition, they'll do what's called Classic K certifications on a car. So say you've got a beautiful Ferrari and you think it's got all the original pieces to it. A lot of people will actually fly their cars either to, you know, to Europe or to the Ferrari factory itself, or they'll fly it to. How do you uh, fly a car, by the way? I just, just you put it on a giant pallet and you put it inside a cargo plane. It's actually not that, Wow, two, options to get a, two options to get a car from from the U.S. to Europe. You either put it uh, in a sea container and you put it on a ship for about four to six weeks, yeah. or you fly it and you can literally have it there in, I wouldn't say 24 hours, but you could have it there in 48 hours. Um, wow. And funny enough, it's sometimes it's actually only about two or three times the cost to fly it than it is to sea freight. It's actually... How much are we talking about to fly a car? Well, if you're going to sea freight a car, you're looking at five grand. If you're going to fly a car, depending on what you know when you do it, um, you can do it maybe as cheap as fifteen grand, uh, depending on the car, how much it weighs, and when you want to spend it. If you're going to spend it during a time when there's a lot of cargo going one way, uh, it might cost you as much as I don't know thirty, forty grand to uh, to ship a car like a two fifty GTO. But say if you have a bigger car, it's a lot more money. So. Um, if you've got a you know a fifty million dollar car or a thirty million dollar car, it might be safer. You might feel a lot more comfortable at night if you fly it to make sure it's yeah. there tomorrow, rather than hoping to God that a uh, sea container doesn't fall off a ship while it's crossing right? the Atlantic. <laughs> so or the yeah, container yeah. workers don't lose the package and then sell it off to some Yakuza tribe leader, mafia leader guy. Exactly. There's a lot of things you got to worry about, but. Um, Anyway, so, yeah, you send your car to the uh, Ferrari folks. Either in Italy. They've got representatives actually all over the U.S. as well. And they'll inspect your car, and they'll give it what's called Classic case certification. And with that comes a very fancy binder and book that they make up. They will only make one ever. So if you say, oh, I lost my little book, they'll say, all right, we'll put it through the certification program again. They'll charge you another however much it costs, 10, 20, 30 grand to, to yep. get the certification done again. But that... Classic case certification has become almost a uh, a little checkbox that you have to you have to fill in these days to sell a top quality Ferrari. A lot of guys are looking to say, all right, not only has you know have Ferrari historians given the stamp of approval on this car, but has the Ferrari factory itself said that this car largely matches the original, has a lot of the original pieces to it, and isn't just some faked up body. They want to see that the Ferrari factory is given the stamp of approval. And if, you know, you're spending a million dollars plus on a car, um, that you kind of makes a lot of sense. So uh, Ferrari and all these other big manufacturers, Maserati, Porsche, Mercedes, uh, those are the ones that I named, 
uh, are very smart to sort of be uh, be tuned into that part of the market, which, you know, you would think, what, what use am I going to have for keeping these records on cars that are 50 years old? Well, now all of a sudden Ferrari has use for it, and they've made a new revenue stream for themselves. So smart. Is there something that is like the defining, this could be a little bit of a philosophical question, but like, is there like a defining thing that gives a car like a, like if, if a car was totaled and it lost its, um, like it needs to have like, like how do you define what makes it the original car? If everything, like if you replace every piece on a 250 GTO, at, cer- at a certain point, it, it's not a 250 GTO. I mean, or, or do people even care at that point? Like, is there a defining, like, soul? No, I think they're absolutely right. There is there is a point at which you can't just keep replacing parts. You can't just make a whole new body. You know, it came with a steel body, but you wanted to make it faster and lighter, so you did an identical body, but it's all aluminum. The top collectors are too discerning for that. They're not going to go after a car that's been baked up. You know, a lot of times if you're seeing, uh, you know, a lot of repainting on a car, you're thinking, all right, well, what happened? You know, was there rust issues with it? Were there, was there a crack? Was, did the car have a crash and there was some sort of damage to the frame that they wanted to repair and then they had to repaint the car to cover up their job? You know, there's a lot of things that, owners of a car that's worth that much money are not going to just settle for second best on. They only want the best of what's out there. And if a car has been, you know, rebuilt around an engine, um, you know, it might not have, it's, well, it certainly won't have as much uh, value as an all original car. Uh, but yep. that being said, some cars are built around pieces, you know, Ferrari factory itself for that second 330 GTO they build the car from pieces, yeah, but that, exactly. then again, that was the factory doing it. So they're kind of given, a, given a little leeway in that. But right. um, you know, I would say, at a bare minimum, you kind of want the main engine again. You can't just build an entire replica of a 250 GTO and throw a Corvette engine in there and say, "Well, look at me. I'm now the 40th member of this tribe." Yeah, uh, it's you know, you can't do that. A lot of guys know where all these pieces are. Um, you know, what's funny is a lot of Ferrari owners who have done restorations over the last 20 years, they'll fight, figure out, all right, this frame number is what this car was came out of the factory with, and this engine number is what it came out of the factory with, and for some reason, this engine is not the correct one that came out of the factory. So they'll actually go around and they will, they'll match out, it up. They'll go find who has the engine in their car, and they'll buy that engine back from them, and they'll do a swap, and... So a lot of guys have spent the time over the last 30, 40 years to make sure that these cars have really been matched up with their, to get their pieces back to them. Um, and certainly it's, it's at the top end of the Ferrari market, it's certainly the case. As you sort of filter down to other marks, it certainly happens as well. You know, top end Aston Martin, they're going to be trying to find that, that original engine, that original gearbox. So uh, there's a whole secondary market to finding these, these spare pieces. And when they, you know, you get these barn finds that come out of the woodwork every now and then if you can't restore the car, at least you can sell those pieces for scrap because God knows you can't find an original, you know, Lancia hood strut. Uh, right. They don't make them anymore. So there's only one way you get them. Either you find them or, uh, or you, you know, scavenge them off uh, some other car. So uh, it's definitely an interesting sort of, uh, uh, sort of secondary market that's developed amongst collector cars in terms of how you restore them, how you legitimize your restoration. You know, it's, it's not just about doing it to your own standards. It's about doing it to the standards of 
the hobby and, and the uh, experts within the hobby and making sure that they've also bought into the fact um, that your car in its new condition is uh, every bit as special and original as, as the first one is. That being said, I've still got this blue and yellow 250 GTO up on my screen. It's, I don't think anyone would give it um, a bad of an eyelash at, uh, you know, in terms of or diminished value. I think this car. I mean, uh, arguably it's has, more valuable because this is going into the history now. Certainly is. Uh, I mean, there's a lot of cars that you just don't know their history on because their owners have had them for 40 years and they might not have taken them on a tour like Mr. Cox did, but, um, and you know, crashing them and getting headlines around the world and photographs posted on every magazine. I mean, 20 years from now, assuming this car is still running and <clears throat> available to purchase, that becomes a point of pride. Yeah. You know, what's funny is I remember uh, summer 2012 when they were doing this 50-year anniversary of the 250 GTO. They were doing celebrations all over the world. You know, you were talking about this uh, this thing they were doing in Le Mans in France um, that was uh, sort of likely in mid-June. Um, I was in Pebble Beach, which is home to the Pebble Beach Concorde Elegance. And that arguably, actually, I wouldn't even say arguably, it is by far the best classic car show in the U.S., if not the world. Yeah. And for the 50th anniversary, they brought together, I think, 21 or 22 of these wow. 250 GTOs. And so not only did they display them on the 18th fairway of the Pebble Beach uh, Golf Course, wow. but they actually drove all, I think... I want to say 18 or something of the of those 22 cars drove in the Tour d'Elegance, which starts a Thursday before that event. And so you get 18 of these cars, all worth somewhere between, at that point, 25 to $40 million, just passing by 18 cars together, quite the value of, who knows, 500 to 700 million, oh just passing by on the road. It was remarkable and certainly one of the most memorable car experiences I've ever had. Well, on that note, that is incredible. Um, Thank you so much for joining us. Uh, Morgan, does Gooding & Company have any crazy auctions coming up anytime soon that we should know about that it's exciting? Yeah, we certainly do. Got a uh, car auction coming up in uh, mid-January in Scottsdale, Arizona, as well as one in, uh, where is it, uh, March 13th in uh, Amelia Island, Florida. Both of those auctions, uh, information about uh, our cars on the website, goodingco.com. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for helping me understand more about the difference between all 250 GTOs and what makes them special and different. Um, and we'll probably talk to you again soon on a future podcast. And thanks again hey, to... Yeah, sorry. Go ahead. I'm sorry. Thank my, you for... My pleasure, Brian. It's been a, it's been a great experience. Yeah, it'll be fun. Uh, and I just also I want to say thank you to Jameson Bennett for putting this podcast together. And uh, we'll talk to you next week.